Well, listen, this morning we are starting a brand new series called The Blessed Life. Uh, this series is the first of a number of series that we'll be doing over the next nine or 10 months or so, walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I'm excited about this, been, been excited about this for uh, several months now, but let me give you just real quick a statement that's gonna be an overarching theme for us as we journey the next nine or 10 months through the Sermon on the Mount. Really what we're seeing in this entirety of the sermon is simply this. We're seeing the uncommon kingdom. The uncommon kingdom. This is what the kingdom of God is. It's a kingdom like no other. Just think about that word uncommon for a moment. Let me give you a definition of this. Oxford Language Dictionary says this. Uncommon means out of the ordinary or unusual. Out of the ordinary or unusual. That's what it means for something to be uncommon. Let me give you a couple of synonyms. Extraordinary, novel, uh, abnormal, rare, different. This is the idea of uncommon. I was thinking uh, this week about different things that we would consider uncommon. And I, I brought a few pictures with me. The first would be this, a four-leaf clover. Um, that, that would be uncommon. This is one of the reasons they say, you know, this is the, the lucky plant. If you find one, it's, you must be a a, a good luck charm because it is uncommon. And the next one is a $2 bill. I don't even know if they're in circulation anymore, so if you ever come across one, uh, $2 bills are very rare and you don't really see them uh, often. Uh, here's another one we, uh, we, we might uh, think of, Halley's Comet. How many of you have ever heard of Halley's Comet? About, about once every 75 years, uh, this comet can be seen. If you can catch it, you're gonna be in an uncommon category. Rarely do people ever say in their lifetime that they've seen Haley Comets twice because of the rarity of this. Here's the thing that I think is most uncommon, a uh, Dallas Cowboy Super Bowl. I think that is, that's the most uncommon thing ever. In fact, um, like the Haley's Comet, it only happens about once every 75 years, and it's a rare thing to see too in one lifetime. That is amazing. Now, for those of you who are like diehard Dallas Cowboy fans, don't be a hater. It was either this or talk about the fact that something uncommon would be my Arkansas Razorbacks winning an SEC football game. That would be an uncommon thing. Well, listen, thinking about uncommon, this is what we're gonna be talking about over the next several months, the uncommon kingdom. We're gonna discover what it's like to experience the uncommon life of this uncommon kingdom that Jesus is ushering in that we now in him are a part of. So if you got your Bibles, I'm encourage you to grab them. Let's go to Matthew chapter four. Matthew chapter four, uh, the latter part of chapter four gives us kind of a, a picture of the theme of the ministry of Jesus that then introduces to us uh, the Sermon on the Mount that begins in chapter five. And so what we're gonna do this morning as you're turning there is I wanna give you a 30,000 foot overview of the Sermon on the Mount. I want us to kind of fly over the Sermon on the Mount, kind of take a look at it and see it uh, in its entirety so that we might understand where we're gonna be in this series and the series uh, to come. So if you're there in Matthew chapter four, say, I'm there. This is what it says. It says, and he, talking about Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, don't miss this, if you wanna underline this phrase, underline it, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among them. It's describing the ministry of Jesus and later on in the verses as it closes chapter four, it's gonna talk about how the, his fame was spreading and the crowds were growing, but the focus of the teaching and the preaching of the ministry of Jesus was a simple phrase. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom or the good news of the kingdom. So what do you mean when he's talking about the kingdom? Well, a kingdom is simply someone's rule or authority. So if you have someone who's in power, if they're a king or a leader and they're over a group of people, those people and those things that are under the rule or the authority of that individual, that would be considered the kingdom of that person. And so what Jesus is doing is he is preaching the rule and reign of God, the authority and the kingship of God. God. In other words, when he says that Jesus is going about preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he is preaching, listen, life as God designed it under God's authority and reign. This is the idea. So just think about for a moment, if you want to get an understanding of kingdom and why Jesus is preaching this message is that think about the Garden of Eden for a minute. In the Garden of Eden, you have the kingdom of God on earth. 
You have creation that is fully subject to the kingship of God, the creator. You have humanity that is in, in full submission to the kingship of God, the creator, living in perfect uh, harmony and perfect relationship. The Hebrew word that would you be used to describe the, the Garden of Eden would be the word shalom, Perfect harmony, perfect peace. Why? Because everything is as it should be under the rule and reign of God. So in the Garden of Eden, you had the perfection of creation because in the Garden of Eden, everything was under the submission of the king creator of everything. And so all was well, all was perfect, all was at peace. But we know the story. We know that Adam and Eve sinned against God. And when they did this, this, they committed high treason against God. They rebelled against the kingly rule of God and they wanted to be governed by self rather than be governed by God. And if you know the story, you know in that moment, creation broke. And everything in creation broke right along with it. Now, humanity no longer living in the shalom of, of, of the kingly rule of God, the creator over them, now they were living in rebellion to God and, and living under the tyranny of the kingdom of darkness that now has entered into creation. So when you think about the brokenness of the world, the chaos, the brokenness, the evil, the injustice, the political unrest, the hatred, everything we're seeing that's chaotic in the world is a byproduct of humanity moving away from life under God's rule in his kingdom to life under man's rule, building our own kingdom. And now we have all of this destruction and chaos. And so here's what God does. In the story, and this is really the entirety of the scriptures, but in the story of the, the fall of man, God does something. He promises that there will be a time when he will bring everything back under to his kingly rule. That he will once again set up his kingdom on earth where he can dwell once again with humanity. Everything will be restored. Everything will be as it was supposed to be under the kingly rule of God, the creator. And humanity will one day come back into submission and live in a restored relationship where once again the kingdom of God would dwell with man. And throughout the entire Old Testament, everything is moving toward this day when this king would arrive, usher in the kingdom of God. And again, God would begin the work of restoring what was broken, the Garden of Eden. And so what it says in Matthew 4, that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom or the good news of the kingdom. He's simply saying this, Jesus came and said, I've got good news. The kingdom of God is now among you. The kingdom of God is here. All of these years of waiting and, and, and hoping and looking for the, the moment when God was gonna usher in his kingly rule once again, I've got good news, the kingdom of God is here. Why? Because the king is here. Jesus is ushering in, once again, this reign and rule of God. It's, it's, it's pivotal that we understand this context because immediately the next thing that happens is found in Matthew chapter five and all the way through chapter seven, Jesus is going to sit with his disciples and he is going to teach what is called the Sermon on the Mount. But that sermon is directly tied to the primary message, which is the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom. Look what he says in Matthew chapter five, verse one. He says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, now, within the context of what we're talking about, so we know what Jesus has been preaching, which is the proclamation of the kingdom. So now he is sitting on the side of a mountain with his followers. Now, notice what it says here. The crowds followed him, but when he had sat down, he brought the disciples and began to teach them. So make sure that you understand this. The primary audience for the Sermon on the Mount is not the crowds at large, but followers of Jesus. He is speaking to his disciples. And he is showing them what it means to live in submission to him as king. You see, this is reminiscent of Moses. Moses uh, came on the scene after the Exodus, and what does he do? He goes up to the mountain and receives the commands of God. Then he gathers the people of God together, and he sits down, and he teaches and explains the commands. And what are the commands? This is what God expects of his people. This is how you're going to live, Israel, as God's people among the peoples so that they might see the glory of your God, that you might be a kingdom of priests to display the greatness of who I am as your God, as your king. King. And now Jesus, the greater Moses, 
the greater prophet, the king of kings, now is beginning his earthly ministry and like Moses goes up to the mountain, calls his disciples and begins to teach them, this is the kingdom of God. This is what it means for you to live in submission to me. This is how you are going to be a people that looks distinctly different among the peoples of the world. And so Jesus in this moment is going to explain to them kingdom life. Some call this the kingdom manifesto. It's where Jesus is explaining to the disciples, what does it look like to live under the rule of King Jesus? I love how Dr. Tony Evans summarizes the Sermon on the Mount, explaining the intent. He says this, he says, kingdom people are men and women, boys and girls, who consciously, upfront, unapologetically flow under the rule of God. Kingdom means rule or authority. Jesus preaches this sermon to espouse kingdom living. So when we think of kingdom life, here's what I want you to hear me say, because I think there's a distinction that we make sometimes that we don't need to make. When we talk about kingdom life, we're simply talking about the Christian life. The Christian life. Because I think sometimes we read the Sermon on the Mount and here's what we think. Okay, there's a difference between good Christians and better Christians. There's like varsity level mature Christians and they're the ones who live out the Sermon on the Mount. They're the kind of the A-team of Christianity. And then there's those of us who are just kind of struggling along and we're just kind of settling into the world and we're, we're saved, but we're just gonna look no different than the world because we're not at that level. No, no, no. Jesus is simply, when he's explaining life in the kingdom, he is explaining this is the expectation for all believers who would follow me. This is life in the kingdom. So here's what we're going to do in this 30,000 foot fly over of the Sermon on the Mount. I wanna give you four essential observations about the kingdom life that we discover right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Four essential observations about the kingdom life that we discover right here in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're a note taker, I encourage you to write down in your journal or in the margin of your Bible. If you're not a, a note taker, I encourage you to get right with the Lord and become a note taker. All right, so here we go. Number one, here's the first essential observation I want to highlight in the Sermon on the Mount this morning is simply this. The kingdom life is an uncommon life. The kingdom life is an uncommon life. You see, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, it literally describes the most foreign life imaginable. It is a 180 degree difference between the fallen world and the world that Jesus is describing, the kingdom that he is describing. Let me, let me show you, I can't do it um, verse by verse of the entirety of this sermon, although I'd love to, but it'd take too much time. Let me give you a couple of highlights here. Look what he says in verses three through five. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now listen, what Jesus is describing is a life that is foreign a life of poverty, a life of mourning, a life of meekness, a life of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Like, who lives like this? And this is exactly the point that Jesus is making. This is countercultural to you and I, right? Our culture doesn't celebrate being poor in spirit or being meek and gentle. It doesn't celebrate being someone who mourns or hungers and thirsts for righteousness. No, no, no. Here's what our culture says. Our culture says, pitied are the poor in spirit, for they will never get anything. Our culture says, blessed are rather overlooked are those who mourn, for they are an inconvenience. Our culture says, weak are the meek, for they will be stepped upon. Our culture says, rejected are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they are out of touch with reality. You see, Jesus is describing an uncommon life of this uncommon kingdom. He goes on in even greater detail, giving us things that are just uncommon to the way that we are accustomed to living. Look what he goes on to say in Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What? Like, are you, like now you're just getting ridiculous, Jesus. You mean to tell me that I need to not only abstain from seeking revenge toward those who would harm me, but I actually need to pray for them, bless them, love them if they are my enemy. And Jesus is saying, I know it's an uncommon life because it's an uncommon kingdom. He goes on in chapter six, I'm not gonna read the verses 
and he describes a number of things. He says that uh, life in the kingdom of God is a life that practices, check this out, prayer regularly, fasting, and generosity, giving. But not only do they practice, do we, do we in the kingdom practice fasting and praying and giving, but we do so with a pure motive, not for the praise of man, but rather for the eyes and the approval of God and God alone, that we don't just do these things because it's expected of us and because we want people to think well of us. No, 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 he says kingdom people, they do these things, but they do those things from a sincerity of heart and motive. He goes on to say, check this out, kingdom people, there are people that don't worry about anything because they trust God in everything. And like, like their, their life is so dependent upon the Lord and trust in him for their, their provision and for their life that everything in their life is about pursuing his kingdom above everything else. Like there's no other pursuits. There's no divided loyalty. They're singularly focused on the kingdom of God above everything in their life. That's an uncommon life. Chapter seven, doesn't get any easier. He says this, check this out. He says that kingdom people self-examine their own heart before highlighting the sins in someone else's life. Like that's not even Baptist, I don't think. Like, right? Like, like you, you mean to tell me that before I can gotcha, that I need to spend some time asking the Lord to weed around in my heart and to expose things that Jesus literally says, some of you are walking around and you got a two by four in your own eye, but you're talking about the splinter in the hand of the person next to you. Kingdom people don't live like that. They, they examine their hearts and then they lovingly talk to brothers and sisters in Christ and encourage them in the Lord. He says this, check this out. He says, kingdom people, it's such an uncommon life that kingdom people treat everyone, including their enemy, like they would wanna be treated. Who lives like this? Like this is the uncommon life of the uncommon kingdom. This is what Jesus is communicating us. This is an uncommon life, and this is exactly the point. Jesus is saying, I have come to usher in a new way of living that looks drastically different from the broken world we live in now. It's a life of peace and love, of faith, of pure motives, of forgiveness, of humility. It's a life that's different from this broken world. It's a life that when you live it, it can be said of you like Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 13 and 16, that when we live this way, he says, you become the light of the world. You become the salt of the earth. He says, kingdom people live in such a distinct way that they bring flavor and they have a preservative power when they live, that they live in this darkness of this world and those who are wandering in darkness, when they see the life of a kingdom person, the life is so uncommon that the light of the glory of God is seen in them and through the light being shone, they might know God and glorify him because they watch your life. Kingdom life. It's an uncommon life. It means that we're different and it's noticeable. So like my first church job was in uh, New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. I went there as an intern for a summer while I was in college. And if y'all didn't know, if you're from New Orleans, I love you and I love New Orleans, by the way. I'm, in fact, I wanna take my family there and visit. I haven't been back in a few years. Uh, but man, there's a different way of living in New Orleans than here. And there's a different language altogether. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like you, you go there and you're like, man, this is, I don't, I don't know what dialect this is. This is amazing. What was crazy is being an Arkansas guy who lived in Texas for a number of years, I think I talk pretty normal. I get there and everyone, when they hear me talk, they're like, you talk so weird. And I'm like, weird? Like, have y'all left your city and actually talk? Like, like you're, you guys don't talk like anybody else, but they would go, you, say that word again or say that phrase again. We love it because you're so Southern and you have this draw. And I'm like, I thought I talked normal. You guys talk weird. But there was something about my accent that when I spoke, somebody would immediately acknowledge, you're not from here. You're different. Listen to me, believer. The accent of the life of a believer is the kingdom life being lived through us by King Jesus. 
so that when the world sees us and they watch us and they listen to us and they're looking at this, there's something uncommon about the way you live. It's different. There's an accent that your life is expressing. I don't think you're from here. You don't live like everyone else. This is what Jesus wants us to see here, which leads me to number two. The first is the kingdom life is an uncommon life. Number two is the kingdom life leads us or leads to an uncommon happiness. It leads to an uncommon happiness. I want you to notice the opening phrases. This is what we're gonna unpack over the next several weeks. These verses, I'm not gonna go into great detail. I'm just gonna talk about one word and next week we'll dive even more into that word. But notice that the first uh, opening phrases of this sermon, nine times Jesus uses the word blessed or blessed. This word here is a word that literally means to have the favor of God or to experience a true happiness that comes from God and God alone. This is the idea, favor or happiness. Now, the happiness that is being described in this world, a word here, is not the happiness that we think of happiness. You know what I'm talking about? Like the happiness that we have is so circumstantial. I don't know if you've ever had those days where you get up and like for whatever reason, you just feel good. Like the sun is shining, the temperature's perfect, it's not too hot, it's not too cold. The breakfast was amazing. His body feels good. You got a pep in your step. Everything, birds are chirping. Man, you're singing. Your favorite song is on the radio on your way to work. You're like, today is gonna be a good day. And there's this overwhelming sense of I'm so happy right now. And then you get behind the moron. If you don't know who that is, it's probably you. And, and now, the, the day that now you're starting, I'm gonna be late now. And now, all of a sudden, I'm feeling frantic and the birds aren't chirping anymore. And I think there's a cloud. It just covered up the sun. And that's favorite song, it went away. And now, like, there's this music from 1970s that nobody listens to is on. And today is horrible. And what happens is that everything is great. Happiness is there. And in an instant, happiness waves bye-bye. Anybody have those days? That's... The happiness, unfortunately, that most of us exhaust every waking moment of our life trying to capture. And when we get it, it's like water in your hand, it's gone. And Jesus is saying the kingdom life leads to an uncommon happiness, a common a, a, a happiness that's altogether different from that kind of happiness. See, when Jesus is describing at the beginning of the sermon, this blessed life or this happy life, he is describing a deep inner sense of contentment and joy that is experienced because God's favor rests upon us. It's not circumstantial. It's not dependent upon if the birds are chirping, if the sun is shining, if the music is playing and all is well in my world. No, no, it's a contentment in the heart knowing that no matter what's happening in the world around me, the favor of God rests upon me. It's life that is full of an internal happiness because we recognize that we have set, been set free from the power of sin and are now able to live in Christ the life we were designed to live. Life under the rule and reign of God. You see, think about the joy we'd experience. Just think about your life for a second. The things that cause such fleeting happiness. Think about the joy you would experience if you, you, you recognize that I don't have to live a life of self-dependence, I don't have to live a life of self-reliance, I don't have to live a life of self-sufficiency, I don't have to live a life where I, I have to self-protect because I have a king who rules over me and provides everything, and as long as I am communing with him and walking with him and submitting to him, everything that I need in life will be mine in him. Because at the end of the day, he is what satisfies me. Think about how liberating your life would be if that began to be the life that you live. This is a different life. It's an uncommon life. It's the life that we were created to live where our satisfaction was found in a relationship with God. You see, this is what the human heart longs for. Look up here at me for a moment. The longing of the human heart ever since Genesis chapter 3. The longing of the human heart has been to return to Eden. 
This is why we chase fame and relationships and money and approval and self-satisfaction. This is why there is a hunger in us that no matter how we feast on the world, we're still left as hungry as we were before because we were created for Eden. And ever since we left Eden, where God is king and we are in right relationship with him and in living in peace and harmony in shalom of God, we've been longing to go back. And now the heart of man will not be satisfied until it's satisfied in him. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And look at me, that's the invitation of Jesus. That's the invitation. When Jesus is calling us into the kingdom life, he's inviting us into this other world that we were created to live in. He's ushering this world onto planet earth now and it invites us in, come to the uncommon kingdom, live this uncommon life. This is the life you were created to live. He is inviting us to finally find the satisfaction our heart longs for by living in the place we were designed to live in submission to our creator. This is why we're seeing the dumpster fire of 2020 that we're seeing. You with me? I mean, we're seeing just absolute chaos. And this is why there are so many people living with this unrest in their soul and this angst in their heart and they don't know, they want direction. This is why so many of us are living in all out panic over the election of man. If this person gets it or if this person gets it, listen, we've gotta understand, we have a king and his name is Jesus and his life is the best life. Regardless of the circumstances of what happens on earth, his kingdom is here, his kingdom is coming, and in his kingdom, no matter what happens in this side of eternity, I am good and I am satisfied because he alone is where I find life and wholeness. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. Now, when you read this, though, let's, let's be honest, all right? Let, let's be honest. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, if you're like me and you read it rightly, you will leave more discouraged than encouraged. Are you with me? Like for those who would read the Sermon on the Mount, and some people will say this, well, how, how does a person uh, know they're going to heaven? Well, just read the Sermon on the Mount and do what it says. Good luck. Like really? Like no one who really reads like with integrity can read the Sermon on the Mount and understand what is being called for, the life that we are called to live, the uncommon kingdom and walks away going, I got this. Like the person who reads the Sermon on the Mountain and says, I got this, is like a guy who wants to skydive without a parachute. Looks at the pilot, he's like, I got this. Like, okay, go ahead and jump, bud. We'll clean up the pieces in a little bit. No, no, you, you read the Sermon on the Mount and you go, who can do this? Like, how is this even possible? And that's exactly the point. Here's number three. This is the heartbeat of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't miss this. The uncommon, or the kingdom life demands, listen to this, an uncommon righteousness. It demands an uncommon righteousness. When you watch and read and pay attention to the Sermon on the Mount, it leaves you going, I can't do this. It's because we need a righteousness that's altogether different than what we have. The entire sermon, by the way, is understood. If you wanna see the point Jesus is making in this entire sermon is he's unpacking for us. This is the kingdom ethic. This is how kingdom people live. But understanding how we get there really rests in our understanding of what he says in verses, chapter five, verse 17 through 20. I want you to look what he says here. Verse 17, he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. When he says law of the prophets, he's talking about the totality of the scriptures, the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not one iota or, or dot will pass away uh, fr uh, from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, the smallest stroke of the pen in the Hebrew language that records the law, not even the smallest stroke is gonna pass away before everything is accomplished. So Jesus, listen to this, is not simply saying, I have come out, I have come to complete the Old Testament. He is saying, I have come to fulfill the Old Testament by bringing out the end desires of God that's in it. 
Like I've come to make sure that I bring the law to its desired end, which is a transformed heart in the lives of humanity. Look at what he goes on to say, verse 19. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now listen to verse 20. Verse 20 is the gut punch of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the gut punch. This is the kicker to the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, everybody say never, never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this would have caused jaws to hit the floor. Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness, your goodness, surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Now, the reason that Jaws would have hit the floor is because the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the epitome of righteousness. They were the standard that everybody in Jewish culture would have looked at and said, if there is anyone who is righteous, it's the scribes and the Pharisees. If there's anybody who knows God, it's the scribes and the Pharisees. If there's anyone who understands the kingdom life and is entering into the kingdom, it will be the scribes and the Pharisees. And here's what the common folk of of this day would have thought. When they saw the scribes and the Pharisees, they'd have said, I could never live up to their standard. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and check this out. He doesn't just say, you need to be like them. He says, you've gotta be better than them. Are you kidding me? You mean the standard I can never live up to? Not only are you telling me I need to nail it with them, but I've gotta be better than them? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying there's an uncommon righteousness that you need. What is he talking about? Like, what is he talking about? When he says, like, the most righteous people on the planet, you've got to have a righteousness greater than theirs. Look what he says in verse, or actually, let me get you to just stay where you are, and I'm gonna have the words on the screen. I wanna show you what Jesus means when he talks about this, where he clarifies this. We see it in Matthew 23. Look what he says in Matthew 23, verse 25. He says, woe to you. Now listen to the people he's talking to, scribes and Pharisees, same people he referred to in the Sermon on the Mount. You hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, the issue with the scribes and the Pharisees is that they were great at external conformity of the law. They were the masters at being obedient to the way they observed the law and the way they practiced the religion of the day. And so when everyone looks at the Pharisees and the scribes, they go, man, this is the epitome of righteousness. Look how obedient they are. And Jesus exposes the real condition of their heart. And he says, listen, these men and women and and these religious people, they love to externally look the part, but internally, the true condition of their heart is full of sin and brokenness. Think about the analogies he's using. He goes, think about seeing a bowl on a a countertop and you look at it, man, it's a beautiful bowl. It's, It's shiny, it's pretty colored paint, it's clean. And then you walk over and peek inside the bowl and you see like old crusty food that's been sitting there for weeks. Who's eating out of that? Like, no thanks. I mean, it looks great from a distance, but when you get up and observe it, you realize that this bowl that looks beautiful and clean is really full of rotting food. This is the way he's describing the Pharisees. He said it's like this. It's like going to a cemetery and you go to the beautiful headstone and at the manicured lawn and you got all the beautiful fresh flowers there. And he says, listen, this is what the Pharisees and scribes look like. This is what religion does. You look really great on the outside, but if you dig in the surface, what you're gonna find is a rotting corpse. And he says, the Pharisees and the scribes, here's their issue. They understand external conformity to religion, but their religion can do nothing to transform the inward condition of the heart. 
And so listen, when Jesus says, you have to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and scribes, he is not saying you need to have a righteousness that's greater in quantity. He's saying you have to have a righteousness that's greater in quality. A righteousness that moves beyond the external and to the internal condition of the heart. Jesus talks about this. If you were to read, we're not gonna go into the entire passage. We're actually gonna do a series over uh, Matthew chapter five, verses 21 through 48, the first of the year called, uh, But I Say. But what Jesus does, he clarifies after he says a righteousness that surpasses, one that looks at the inward condition, not just the external. And he says things like this. He goes, hey, listen, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. How many think that's a good idea? He says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I tell you, but I say to you, if you have anger and hatred in your heart towards someone, you are guilty of murder. So he looks beyond the act itself and says, what is the root of the act? The root of the act is the heart of anger and hatred toward another individual. That is where murder springs up from. He says, so you might be really good at suppressing the act of murder, but the root that causes it still remains inside of you. And that's what I came to redeem. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at another person who's not your spouse and lust after them, you've committed adultery in your heart. So again, where does adultery come from? It comes from the lust of the heart that is acted upon. So you might be able to live a life and escape the act of adultery. But the root that leads to it still remains inside of you. And he says, kingdom people, they don't just conform externally. There is an internal transformation that leads to external behavior change. You see, the gospel's aim is to work inside out Religion's aim is to work outside in. The problem is it can never happen. Only the inside out transformation of the gospel makes it possible for us to live the kingdom life. And this is the righteousness Jesus says that we need, a righteousness that moves beyond our external behavior, that moves into the core of who we are. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, don't miss the last phrase, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is important that we see this because Jesus is saying, there is a righteousness that you need that you don't have. That righteousness qualitatively is different than that of the scribes and Pharisees. And if you don't have it, you won't enter the kingdom of God. So don't miss this. When Jesus is describing this righteousness, he's not describing the difference between good Christians and better Christians. He's not describing, hey, listen, if you have this, this spiritual maturity, then you're gonna have a better righteousness and you'll be able to experience more of my blessing. No, 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 no. Jesus is saying this righteousness is the difference maker between true Christians and false Christians. David Platt would say it like this. This is the difference between heaven and hell. If you don't have this uncommon righteousness, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll be separated from God forever. This should cause us to ask a very important question. How do I get this righteousness? Where does it come from? Look what he says in verse 17. This is the answer. Verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus, listen to this, is the fulfillment of everything that God has demanded of us. Jesus came and he lived a righteousness that was greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus not only externally obeyed the law, but Jesus internally is the perfection of everything that God demands. So not only did Jesus not murder anyone, Jesus never had unrighteous anger or hatred toward anyone. Not only did Jesus not commit adultery or fornication, Jesus never even had the lust in his heart to want to do that. You see, Jesus did not just love his neighbors and his disciples, but on the cross, he was able to look at his enemies, those who were crucifying him and say, Father, forgive them. 
Why? Because Jesus alone is the embodiment of the righteousness that we need to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom life is impossible with man-made righteousness or personal self-betterment out of religious motivation or practices. We need a righteousness that is alien to enter into our life to give us what we do not possess and what we cannot earn on our own. Are you with me? And Jesus is saying, I am that righteousness. I have come. And so Jesus, the embodiment of righteousness, dies for our sins and resurrects from the grave, enabling us to receive in him a righteousness that exceeds anything that I could get in religion. Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Listen to what he says. He says, for our sake, he, God, made him, this Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when we, by faith, embrace Jesus as Lord, his righteousness then is imputed to us. So this righteousness that he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, that we need to enter in the kingdom of heaven, it is the righteousness of Jesus that he imputes to us by his grace when we, by faith, repent, trusting in him as our Lord. That we receive, you see, here is what he means when he says you need a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the scribes. He's saying you need the righteousness of God. And I have come so that God's righteousness might be by my grace imputed, applied to your life, and it become yours. And so here is what we call the great exchange, this passage of scripture in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God took Jesus who was perfect. He was the embodiment of the righteousness, the kingdom life that is being described here. And Jesus who was perfect, our sin was transferred to his account. And when we by faith respond to him in his grace, his death and resurrection, his righteousness is transferred to our account and we are imputed, given freely the righteousness we need to enter into the kingdom of God. That Jesus says, if you will call on my name, I will rescue you, I will deliver you, I will give you this righteousness, but not only will I give you this righteousness, that with this righteousness, something else is coming. A new spirit is being put in you. It's the presence of God himself, the Holy Spirit. Your heart will be made alive, and that heart of stone that was rebellious toward the authority of God and the rule and reign of God in your life, now it's gonna be replaced with a heart of flesh that beats for God and that longs to follow in submission to him, because all along God's demand from us could not be met by us but in Jesus they are and when we get Jesus we get the life of Jesus living inside of us so now the life we couldn't live before the uncommon life of the kingdom now is possible because it's Jesus's life being lived through me this is why Jesus when Nicodemus in John chapter 3 comes to him Nicodemus not just a Pharisee but a Sanhedrin the elite, the best of the best, the special forces of religion. He comes to Jesus and says, how can a person enter the kingdom of heaven? He looks at Nicodemus, a man full of self-righteousness, and says, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, born from above, cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, unless you receive the imputed righteousness of me, and are born into the life of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But when you do, you are now citizens of the kingdom of God with a new heart and a new life. This is what Jesus is inviting us into, which leads me to number four, which is our conclusion and how we respond. Number four, simply this, kingdom life requires an uncommon choice. Jesus is, makes no bones about it. He's saying to us, I'm calling you to an uncommon life. Kingdom life is an uncommon life. I'm calling you to this. It's not gonna be easy. It's a life of complete surrender to me as your king and not everyone wants to relinquish the throne of their life to me. It's not easy, it's an uncommon life, and it's not gonna be an easy life, but at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, but it does require a choice. You've got a choice to make. I was at somebody's house a few months back, and in the kitchen, the mother put up one of those mom phrases, 
And the question on the top says, what's for dinner? And they said, here's the menu. It's take it or leave it. That's the menu. Jesus comes to the end and he says, this requires a choice. And here is the choice. It's take it or leave it. It's take it or leave it. He, he does this. He shows us this in the Sermon on the Mount with two illustrations. The first is of two different roads and the second is of two different houses. Look what he says about the roads. He says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus says there's two roads. One road is wide and it's smooth and it's easy going and it's a popular road. And there's a lot of people because the road is easy and the road is accessible and because the road is popular, they're gonna follow this road. But the destination of this road is destruction. It is life outside the kingdom. And then he says, there's a second road. It's narrow and it's rough and it's unpopular and it's hard and sometimes lonely but it leads to life. It leads to an uncommon happiness. It leads to a life as God designed it once again under his rule and reign. And so he's simply saying, there's two paths. Which path are you on? And then he says there are two houses. Look what he says in Matthew 7, verse 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine. Now notice what Jesus is doing here. I, I believe Primary audience is disciples. The crowds are there. And Jesus may have lifted head up. And he's coming to the very last few phrases of the sermon. And he says, now, if anyone, whether you're in the crowd or you're a disciple, you hear these words of mine and they do them. They're like a wise man that built his house upon the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on the house, but it did not fall because it, had, it was founded on the rock. Then everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat against the house and it fell and the great was the fall of it. Now notice what he's saying here. He says, there's two paths. There's a hard path that's narrow and it's unpopular and it leads to life. And then there's another path that's wide and it's smooth and there's, there's a lot of people on it and it leads to destruction. And then he says, and there's two houses being built. These houses represent our lives. And there's two possibilities for your life. You're either hearing the words of Jesus and you're rejecting them or you're hearing the words of Jesus and you submit to his lordship. And he says, the response is your life is being built on the foundation of Jesus as king of your life or your, your life is being built upon the foundation of you being the king of your life. And he said, so not only are there two houses, but there is one storm. And he says, the storm is coming and one house is gonna survive and one house is gonna be destroyed. Now listen, when Jesus says the storm coming, he is not referring to the general storms of life, which are real, the Bible addresses those. I believe he's talking about the storm of God's judgment and wrath. The kingdom of God is coming and we're being invited in by repentance and faith, but there's a day coming when the kingdom will be consummated. And when the king returns, he will make all things new, which means he will judge sin and there will be great destruction coming to those who are not built upon him. And here's what he's saying. This judgment that's coming is coming and all of us are gonna stand in his path. He said, for those of you who have built your life on self, of you being king, of your life being about you, he says, on that day, your life will be forever destroyed but it doesn't have to be this way. If you'll hear these words, if you'll repent of your sin, if you'll trust in me as king, if you'll rest in the righteousness that I've come to give you and let my life make you alive and in the Holy Spirit, then what's gonna happen is when the judgment of God comes, you will withstand the judgment. Why? Because you are in me and I have already received the judgment. The storm fell on me and because you're in me, the storm cannot touch you. How great is that? 
but the choice is yours. Take it or leave it. You see, I'm so thankful that the book of Matthew doesn't stop here. I would be depressed. The Sermon on the Mount is sandwiched between two major ideas in the book of Matthew. The beginning of the book of Matthew, it talks about Jesus being born to be the one who delivers his people from their sin. And it ends with Jesus being the resurrected sacrifice who has made salvation possible. What are you gonna do with this kingdom life? I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads this morning. Some of you in this place today, you don't have a relationship with God. Your relationship with God is like the scribes and the Pharisees. And many of you in this room, maybe you know that. You've trusted in your good works. You've trusted in being a person that goes to church and knowing about God, being better than the person next to you. But you have never rested in the uncommon righteousness that's found in Christ and Christ alone. And today, listen, you have got a choice to make. If you've never trusted in this righteousness, this King Jesus being the king of your life, then you are on the broad road of destruction. But this morning, the Holy Spirit of God is putting up a detour sign for you and he's given you an exit ramp to leave one path to enter another. And so this morning, if you're here and you hear this, you're like, man, I think that's me. I think that's me. I don't think that I have that relationship with God like this. I don't think I've trusted in the righteousness of Jesus and I want to be sure that my life is being built upon him. Then right now where you are, you can simply confess your sin, repent. You can say, God, I'm a sinner. I know that I am unrighteous even in my good behavior. And I need Jesus' righteousness. God, I repent of my sin and I submit to King Jesus. I want to be made alive in him today. God, thank you for saving me in Christ. Amen. Listen, with no one looking around, if you prayed that prayer, I just wanna get you to do me a favor. If, you, if you're serious today, you're like, man, I, I need Jesus to save me. I wanna enter the kingdom of heaven because I, I want the life that Christ has called me to live and to experience him in a relationship. I'm gonna get you to do me a favor. Just lift your hand really high. Just really high, if that's you. This morning, you're like, I prayed, Pastor, to receive Christ, or I need to pray to receive Christ. Raise your hand just really high for me. Just lift it up with no one looking. If you lifted your hand this morning, or maybe you wanted to, I'm gonna encourage you. In a moment, we're just gonna sing for a minute. And we have some decision encouragers here. If you need a relationship with Christ, or have questions about it, or maybe you just were feeling kind of like, I've got questions and I've got this, this, this desire, but I don't know what to do with it, then I wanna encourage you in a moment, just leave your seat and come forward and let one of our decision encouragers pray for you and help guide you. Maybe you're here and you know Christ, but you know, man, I, I, I am not walking in submission to my King and I know that there's some areas in my life I need to repent of. Then as we begin this series, maybe today would be a day where you would just confess and repent and ask God to realign your heart with his rule and authority. Father, I love you and I pray now in the name of Jesus that we could respond with faith and obedience. We ask this, believing that you're at work in this room. In Jesus' name.